that's a big mistake. People don't evolve the end user. They start making something and they think, hey, I made a great tool, so they will use it. No, that doesn't work. So people are busy, they're doing other stuff. So you need to really involve the end user. Start small, very small, and do this step-by-step step, gathering feedback. So make really basic version of the tool, go and test it out, see if that really solves the problem of the people, get feedback, improve it, and do that once, twice, 10, 20 times, but in small steps, don't make a big step and then have a big win of a, of a big disappointment, probably. What is up, everyone? And thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. On this episode, we welcome Anand Bergman, an expert in process automation and digital workflows for engineering and construction companies. In this episode, we discuss how Anand got interested in automating engineering workflows the business case for automation and how companies can get started on their automation journey. Anand will also share insights on the future of AI in engineering design and advice for both new grads and senior engineers looking to level up their digital skills. If you enjoy the podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a review. This helps us get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors and advisors, check them out by visiting www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Anand, so background in aerospace engineering, structural engineering. So how did you get interested in digital engineering and parametric design? Yeah, so when I was at the university, so I did a master in aerospace engineering, we did a lot of optimization techniques. So aerospace is really focused on saving weight because everything, yeah, you have to fly around. So they're trying to save weight as much as possible. So you can imagine that they optimize the last piece of the aircraft or spaceship. So we, we did a lot of optimizations uh, with MATLAB uh, at the time. When I entered the industry, I didn't work in aerospace industry. I went into the offshore industry. So there were big steel beasts being made from steel. At the end, I ended up in a project where we had a lot of repetitive work. And yeah, the, the honest answer is that it was boring. So it was super boring to do all those things again and again and again. And that was my motivation to start off developing the skill of, of programming, automating stuff, and that evolved it. And yeah, I'm part of a company, it's called Victor. And with a group of people that are passionate about automating stuff, we started doing that in production companies. We started doing that for different design projects. And we noticed that actually what really differentiated us from the rest was that we were very good in, in automating stuff, basically. So we end up building this company called Vector, which is a platform that enables engineers to automate the process. And that's what we do. So we help them to, to create those tools so that they can automate their processes and don't have to do all those boring stuff I hated when I was an engineer, practicing engineer myself. Yeah. I'm sure Martin feels your pain as a fellow or a, a structural engineer himself. That's right, yes. So Anand, before we dive into Victor, um, how was the transition between, between being an engineer and then a developer, software developer? 
what, is it a fairly similar skill set or you had to completely forget about something and learn something new or tell us how did it go? It's complementary. So you cannot, I work mostly in the construction industry and construction, so you need to have that domain knowledge. So if you know a lot of programming, but you don't know civil engineering and geotechnical engineering of whatever you want to automate, you will have a really hard job automating that stuff because you don't understand the process. You don't understand the implications. At the same time, if you have domain knowledge, but you have no programming skills, then you will end up doing a lot of stuff again and again and again. So at the end, it's a combination. And if it's a square one, yeah, it's a natural transition. So you discover stuff you don't like doing. You try to find ways to improve that. Making Excel sheets is probably the first thing we all do. Make some Excel sheets. Then we, when you reach the limits of the Excel sheet, you went into programming. I went into Python, which I will recommend everyone to, to go into because it's free. There's a lot available for you. And then you start practicing, solving problems, and you start each time getting better in automating stuff. And But it's still a combination of both. That there is a path you have to walk to, to get handy in this. It's really a skill you have to practice. No, I just want to touch on, because you mentioned that in aerospace engineering, the goal is to minimize the weight. And in engineering, structural engineering, actually, it's the same case. Minimize the size of sections, make the most, the cheapest structure, but also it has to comply with codes and be safe for the end user. So tell us what are the differences or similarities between aerospace engineering and structural engineering? I think from a distance, they are quite similar. Not so I did a master in aerospace engineering in the structural side. And if you look at structures, they all kind of behave in the same way. So it's, it's the same basic principles. There, where you really see the difference is, of course, and the weight of stuff we're doing. So if you look at the bridge of a building and you compare it with a plane, it's totally different. So if you look at a plane, you have maybe plates of, of a few millimeters. So the whole shell of a plane, it's just a few millimeters. Everything is super thin and optimized. And there's a lot of details in it to, to save all weight. And civil engineering is more rough. You know, it's big structures, big beams. And I think weight until... Some time ago was not that important. And I think in the last five, 10 years max, people are paying more attention to, hey, we can optimize more. We can make cheaper designs. And I think that has been enabled by better analytical tools and by better programming skills. That's the real way of getting more of your knowledge. You know? so, so we know how to calculate the structures, but we don't have the time to really do this optimization. Because we tend to say, hey, what's the worst case scenario? And you take one of two of those and you calculate the whole structure for those cases. Then it's fine. But that's a very heavy and not optimized design, which is basically a very expensive design at the end. There you really see the difference between aerospace and civil is to the degree in which they optimize stuff and get the outmost of material. Okay, so on to process automation. Obviously, that, that's like a key topic we're going to discuss is what the fundamentals of automating processes? Yeah, so I don't know if, if these are the fundamentals, but I think that any good automation process begins with a good plan. And a good plan, it's looking beyond making the tool. It's really going into the point of, okay, who is going to use this tool? What is the return on investment on that tool? And when you have that all mapped out, when you have a really clear picture, then you start making the tool. So I think if I will sketch a roadmap of how to do this, it starts with a good plan. And then you have many steps in between, which we can talk longer about. That's the thing that 
you really have to be aware of. It's not just making that Excel sheet of making that Python script and uh, it will work. No, you really need to make a plan to get this done. Yeah, and what might be some of the steps in between then? Because just talking about personal experience, like I've tried to automate a lot of things and then you start and then you're like, oh my God, this is way bigger than I ever anticipated it to be. Like you think it's just something simple, but in reality, yeah. it takes a lot longer. Yeah, it's true. So let's say you have a good planner and you have to done your calculation. You, you have calculated the return on investment. So it starts there. That's step one. You say basically how much time and will I have to spend in automating this process? Some software costs that you have. That's basically the, the cost of automating the process. And what you will get back from it is how much time you will save, not as an engineer, but as a construction company, how much material you will save and risk because you have much better understanding of the structure and the project and you have done much more scenario analysis, so you have less risk. And then you have to give that some value, some money. At the end, it's money versus money. And when you plot it in a graph, you will see that some projects really have a quick return, let's say in a year, in a single project, and some others, it's like a long run. So we'll start with the, the ones that have a quick return on investment. So that's up when. When you have selected that project, then you need... A good team. It's a team effort. So you need to involve the people making the tool. So the software developer to call it somehow. You need someone that it's like owning, they call it the software world, they call it the product owner, which is basically the person in between the people using your tool and the people making the tool. So it's the one gathering feedback, asking, hey, is this working? Promoting the tool. So, so you really need to have that. And you need a new end group of end users, so people using this tool. So that's a big mistake. People don't evolve the end user. They start making something and they think, hey, I made a great tool, so they will use it. No, that doesn't work. So people are busy. They're doing other stuff. So you need to really involve the end user. Start small, very small, and do this step-by-step step, gathering feedback. So make really basic version of the tool. Go and test it out. See if that really solves the problem of the people, get feedback, improve it, and do that once, twice, 10, 20 times, but in small steps. Don't make a big step and then have a big win of a big disappointment, probably. So that will be one of the keys. And if you look like a more the practical side of it, yeah, there's a roadmap too. So I will think the first thing, of course, if you want to automate, you have to digitalize. No, you cannot automate something that is on paper. So that's step one having everything digital. Then I think that the most important part is probably having a standardized process. So, and knowing that process very well. So there are a lot of companies that have a process are maybe not able yet to put that on a, like a chart flow. You start here, you go there, you do that, you get Excel sheets here, blah, blah, blah. So map that process very well, understand what's happening and all the choices. And that doesn't mean that each time you get to the same solution. No? You, you can have all times different solutions, but as long as the process is standardized. So that will be step two. Then you will start, I think, automating different stuff, not in that process. So you will have this whole map and you'll say, okay, this is a big dream. This is what I want to do. You already verify that you will earn money with that. And then you have to take a small piece to start and see, okay, what is like the quick win in this whole thing we can start with? and then start with it and automate the process, automate maybe another part, validate that that's kind of working how you want. And then the next phase is really integration. So, hey, can I connect those different pieces of islands of information, disciplines, structural engineering, geotechnical engineering, can I merge that somehow, that information flow? And then you have really the optimization phase. So when you are able to do everything automatically, 
you can optimize, not you can run a lot of calculations. So you could do it automatically, but get a bad design, basically. So you want to do a lot of iterations, get the best design. And then the next phases are really more social distribution. No? So how will you share this with people? Having a good system for that, having an Excel sheet in a, in a shared folder is not a good system because there are a lot of problems that you can have from that. And then it's really democratized. So, okay, you have a tool that it's giving value. You have a way of sharing it. How will you make sure that basically potentially anyone in your company that should be able to use that tool really uses that tool? So, and the last step, it's, it's really democratization. So it's thinking in, okay, you have a nice tool that works, but how can I make sure that people really use it? So people with different backgrounds, maybe people of the sales division, people without programming experience, how can they use the tools they need? And very often the, the solutions, of course, a nice user interface people can interact without having the technical skills. Yeah, got it. it. Makes sense. So you mentioned Excel sheets. Okay, Python scripts probably sounds quite scary. Excel sheets probably more manageable. But what are these the basic tools people can use to try and automate some initial processes within their business? Yeah, so Excel, it's of course a very familiar tool. A lot of people kind of know how to use it. You can get very handy on it and do quite some stuff there. Programming sounds a bit more scary. I think it's it's not. If you give it a chance, you can start learning this. There are quite some free courses you can follow a few hours in a week and make some progress. It starts really from, from zero, so from the basics. So you can do that too. And it depends on, on which sector you are, not? So um, if you are more in this construction side, I can imagine there are all kinds of tools you, you can use that are ready to be used. But I think if you want to make your own tools, there's nothing better than really learning programming language. And then I would recommend Python in this case. And the reason is, is that when you have an Excel sheet, you will learn quite quickly that you will reach the limits of what you can do with an Excel sheet. Of it gets really messy, of, of difficult to make sure that there's no mistake in this sheet. Now you have cells linking each other and how do you make sure the quality control is difficult in an Excel sheet? No. So when you go into programming, you break that exponentially. No? You, you start slow. But once you get used to programming, you go exponential in the stuff you can automate. So that's, that's really the next step. And you will see the same with some other tools people use. For example, you have Grasshopper or Dynamo, which are programming tools, people where you can drag and drop stuff and connect those, those nodes and each thing does something. Now, so this box drops something, this box does something and you connect it. And then you have a result, which is a freebie model in this case. But there you have the same thing. You start learning it and you will reach the limits of it. And then you have to go into programming anyways. So if you are serious about this and you really want to go into programming, into automating, I will say skip the Excel phase, skip the Dynamo and Grasshopper phase and go into Python directly because you will do it anyway. So uh, go for it. Anand, can you give us an examples of like maybe cool or nice automations that you have seen within businesses, construction businesses, engineering businesses, or any others that help really improve the workflow or task automation? Yes. Yeah, so, so we have many cases. So we have been working in, in the offshore industry, energy, production, piping systems. So if I think in construction, um, give you a few examples that go from really concept design to very practical construction side of things. So I can give you a few examples so that you see along the whole chain what you could achieve. 
So for example, we have clients that at the very beginning of any project, which is basically defining, is it a good business case? Not <laughs> there it begins before you build a tower, you have to define it's a good business case. What they do is that they created an app where you can basically draw polygon in a map and it pulls a lot of data from different data sources. At the end, it helps you uh, see what the value is of a project in that zone. So it, it takes into account other schools, other supermarkets, other shopping malls, whatever. And they collect all that data. They connect all kinds of real estate data. And they say, hey, if you build a building here, you will probably have this kind of revenue for this kind of building. So it helps you to make like a development decision. And then we have another client, which is kind of the next phase. They do high-rise buildings. And what they do is, it's like the conceptual design of the, of the building. So they have like a floor plan and say that many heights, this type of apartments, and then from this height, other kind of departments. So they have these maps and they do it automatically. And then the whole calculation about, is this a good design based on money at the end? So they say, okay, if I do this building, they know the cost of the building. They have a lot of experience. So they automated all that knowledge and they say, okay, this is a building that will cost about this, I have so much square meters of commercial buildings, of residential buildings, of whatever inside this tower. So they can evaluate if that is a good business decision, making that tower. So there you have more on the commercial side of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to go to more the, the practical side, the building side, of more more a case where, where it's all integrated, I have a case, for example, of a case of a company doing foundations pile foundations. In the Netherlands, everything is on piles because the soil is very soft. So Mm. piles everywhere. And they face the same challenge everyone faces. So they get quotations and not all quotations become projects. So of course, they have limited time to spend in quotations because you're not sure if that will bring you money. Pain of a lot of people's lives. Yeah. But what is the consequence? The consequence is that you make a rough design you have a lot of risk and you cover that risk with a higher price, meaning at the end you are less competitive. So you're offering, you're losing tenders because you don't spend enough time in making quotations. And that's the balance they have between, okay, you have breaks and I have quotations. How much time can I spend? So what they decided to do is to make a tool that will help them make quotations. To make quotations, they make a pile plan. So they calculate, they have an engineering office too. So they calculate how much the spiles can wear in load, how long they need to be, and they have different designs. Okay, they make the whole decision about the design automatically. Oh, wow. So it's, it is done by a software, right? The human doesn't need to design yeah, it's it. it's done by software. Yeah, so it's uh, they, they made a Victor app. So they, they made an app that, that does this. The whole pile plan is calculated automatically. That was phase one. Mm-hmm. So... As you said in the beginning, Martin, so you say there are companies trying to save weight because weight is equal to price often in, in engineering world. Now, so less weight, less price. Yep. So they took the next step, but the reality is for them, it's material, it's only a part of the price because you have at one side material, the piles basically, and the other side is how fast can you put mm-hmm. those piles on the ground? No, you have these big machines stamping those piles hours and hours and hours. They do big projects, you know, with hundreds of piles. So the missing information for them was how fast can we do that? So the first part, we know very well with like standard engineering calculations. We know how to calculate how much load you can put in a pile, but we cannot calculate how fast you can drive those piles in the ground. So the thing they did was 
the machines, they put sensors on the machines that measure how fast piles were getting in the ground and how much force the hammer was applying on the pile. And they start collecting this data through projects, a lot of projects. So they have thousands of millions of data points. And we help them to create a machine learning models or artificial intelligence to be able to predict how fast you can drive that pile based on the soil conditions. So they measure how the layers, you have sand and you have all kinds of layers, they measure that. And based on that information and project information, they cross that information and the machine learning model says, okay, you will probably take that much time in putting the piles. So now they have two parts of the puzzle. Now they know how much material, how much time they will cost it, and they do that automatically. So you can imagine how competitive they are now. So they offer you a better design at the moment. So what happens is people go there with a draft of what they want. They put that in the software and between hours, they have a better, cheaper solution. So that alone is a reason to go to them. You know you will get a a better solution than what you have and a cheaper solution. Yeah. So there you see that the big impact you can have with this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm just interested to hear Martin's thoughts on that. Because Martin, do you design piles? Yes. The well, first thing that came to my head when and he was talking is uh, your dad's grant work business that you could uh, add some sensors on the excavators and <laughs> measure the time of excavation. But um, yeah, yeah, we design piles, but the it piles is probably between uh, 2 and 3% of what we do. So it, it's very little. But What do you do, Martin? Can you tell us a bit more? Sure, yeah. So I do small, medium-sized projects, uh, structural engineering for small and medium-sized projects up to 7 million pounds, really. So so low-rise, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, so and how does uh, one go about like identifying... I think I can answer this question, by the way, but I, I wanted you to go into more depth. But how does one go about identifying areas of their business which or processes which they can automate? And you can't say, this would be my answer, the ones that you do every single day and they're super boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's actually a very good answer to it because it starts there. But I think what I will recommend is what I said earlier. So have a session with all the people involved in the process. So, for example, in the pile project, the sales guys, because they also have impact of how you design stuff. You know, that, the people that design the piles, all the people involved in this design process. And come together and step one, draw your process on, on a whiteboard. So make this flow chart where you say, hey, where does the design start? Okay, it starts with a quotation of the client. What do we do next? Okay, I ask my colleague of the structural engineering to make a quick calculation. Exactly. Okay, how much time does it take? Okay, whatever, two days. How often do we do that? 10 times a week, for example. Yeah, okay. What's the next step? Okay, uh, yeah, then I sent the structural calculation report to my other colleague who does the price calculation. Okay, and how do you do that? Yeah, I send them an Excel sheet with this data. What does he do? No, I put that Excel sheet in my other Excel sheet and I calculate the price. Okay, mm-hmm. how much time does that cost? No, two hours. How often do you do that? Yeah, 10 times uh, in a week. And so you start mapping your whole process in a very conscious way and then you have it there in front of you. Yeah? So the first step is really understanding this process. And then you can really think the next step. Now it's saying like, hey, what will happen if this guy that is calculating the stuff doesn't need to do that anymore and the sales guy could do this directly? Yeah, that will mean this. That will mean that I will call clients happier. This will mean that I will save time. That will mean that my colleague will be able to 
focus on, on special projects and not in like the common stuff. And then you, you start making a map of that, of the consequences, and you dare to dream basically and say, okay, this will be my ideal flow. And without thinking in all the technical limitations you will have, and if you have the technical skills, then you can say, okay, let's try this part out, you know, make a decision. Hey, it seems that here you will have the biggest impact with the lowest effort. There's always a place where you could have the biggest impact with the lowest effort. Start there. And if you don't have the technical skills, well, then find the company. There are many companies doing automation. You can all call us. You can call other companies doing that. And they can help you. If you have clarity of your process, they can help you take the next step. It's, you need to know your process. Yeah, it feels like the best business cases are for businesses which specialize quite heavily within very narrow engineering or some other activities so that there's a lot of repetitive work which repeats every day, every week. So there's a visible gain there. I think that there are two like interesting cases. One is what you say. So businesses that have a routine, so they don't make, it, make always the same whole way of bridge, but they always make bridges. Of always make of make a lot of them, but they have like always this need of follow the same process. And the other ones are like the the big projects. So, for example, we are helping to this tunnel being built of designed at the moment between Denmark and Germany, Pharma Belt Link, and this is the longest submerged tunnel in the world. And they are automating the design on a Victor app. So they, we are helping them to, to automate the industrial design. And there, the business case is totally different. So it's one-off, but high implications. It's a big project, a lot of data, a lot can go wrong, and consequences are mega expensive. Then it's, it's so obvious you should make a tool for that project too. Yeah. So I would like to open up a little bit to parametric design. Uh, we have said, uh, what is parametric design? And what is your definition of parametric design? I think there's no one definition. There are like many terms that kind of mingle. So parametric design, algorithmic design, whatever. But it, at the end, if I will draw a sketch on paper, so to explain the most basic way is if I draw a cube and I will say this cube is three by four by five. That is classical design. And then you calculate something and you say, yeah, it fulfills. It doesn't fulfill, and you draw another cube from another side, and then you check again if it's good or not good. Parametric design, what you do is you say, I write a cube, and now the cube is like a cube, but the measurements are A, B, C. So you don't have this fixed, and what you do is change the parameters, so the A, B, C, and start changing parameters and getting the results of those, so you don't spend the time updating your design. So basically, at the end, you can update the design just by changing the parameters. That's why they call it parametric design. You just change the dimensions, you get the result. And then you have the next step. It's, it's a bit, they call it generative design. It's where you basically ask a computer to generate thousands of design and to compare those designs to make the best choice. Or to say, okay, I want a building. These are the conditions, 10th floor or whatever. And then it generates thousands of buildings that fulfill those conditions. And then you can say, yeah, I like this one. I like the other ones. So the whole kind of design work is done for you. You only need to take decisions. So the parametric design and generative design, do you use any LLMs, large language models to generate these? Or this is something completely different, these LLMs from the generative design? Yeah, so LLMs are getting very popular. So I think that the most popular one is ChatGPT. Four, which it's, it's a very well-known uh, 
chat system, you can ask everything to it and it will replay to you in, in a human way. So LLM stands for large language model. So it's basically an algorithm that's able to understand human language and replies in human language. And you could have applications in parametric design where you say, hey, you write down, make a building from these dimensions and that finally draws that building for you. That exists, but on a kind of basic way. So it's the beginning. Maybe we will come there, but I don't see really full-fledged designs coming from that. But there are other applications that are quite interesting for LMMs. So for example, there are a lot of, of reports of things you can send such a model. For example, if you have a lot of design reports and you could say, hey, make a summary of those 10 reports. What are like, what were the dimensions of the things? And you put that in. And it summarizes that for you and says, hey, this is the information you need. So it helps you screen basically your documents in a quick way. Can they read the photos? Uh, no, because it's, it's only language. It's right. only language. So you can read language, text, written and verbal. Uh, but there are other models, other models that can read images. And we see, we see applications for that too. So for example, we work with uh, McDermott and they do piping systems. And I don't know if you have seen like a piping system diagram, but it's like, it's a lot of symbols and it's a really crowded. It's like almost a circuit board with all kinds of things. And it's about, okay, you have the pipe, you have the, vol the valve, you have all kinds of components in the piping system. And what they did is having a machine learning model in this case that recognizes all the symbols in this drawing and that does the checks. So basically they have thousands of verified documents that the most senior engineers have checked and say, okay, this is good. They feed that to the machine learning model. And now the junior people can make drawings, put it there, and they get all the mistakes. Like, hey, the distance between the valves are not large enough because of the ways they will clash. They, they are able to screen all kinds of, of faults in the design for them. So that's a very interesting application too. Mm, interesting. Where does you guys fit between, tell you where for, you guys do the obviously the process automation, but also parametric. Like, how does that kind of intertwine with each other? Yeah, so... so Maybe to start, Victor is a platform um, that enable like engineers that have some coding skills to build their own web applications, to build like tools to automate the process, but that they are user-friendly too. And on top of that, we provide the whole system of sharing those tools with people. So it's like an internal app store where bigger companies have 50 or 60 apps. Their employees can access those apps. And on top of that, we provide a system to connect different software packages. So if you use a finite element package with an Excel sheet, with a Revit model, we provide you tools to connect those things and share the data between different tools. And that's quite generic. So you could do everything with it, but we are specialized in engineering and we have quite some clients in civil engineering. So basically any kind of process you have, you could automate that at the end with some programming skills. So... Yeah, you can call it parametric design of not, but there's a lot of automation with different methods and we do it in the offshore industry. We do it in energy. Uh, we do a lot of civil engineering infrastructure projects also with dikes and tunnels and that kind of stuff. So it's nice to see like what's happening and basically what applies in some places also apply in other places. There are like generic concepts that you can use everywhere. So it's, How have yeah. you seen like your target markets in response to wanting to incorporate the automations into their business. Are people resilient or are they excited or are they super enthusiastic at the start and then halfway through they're like, oh man, it's a lot of work. Like, I don't know if I can do it. But how does that pan out? Yeah, so in general, I think a lot of people searching for automation tools. 
So people want to automate the processes. People are understanding the importance of doing that. So if it's not you, your competitor will do it and you will have being non-competitive. So everyone is doing this. But what you still see is that different companies are at different level of experience of education. So not everyone knows how to automate the process, which tools you, you need, which how should your team look like? What is the process? What is the quality control systems? So there is a lot of education uh, to be done and we have a lot of experience which we can share. And when you talk about how do people react to this, it depends a lot. And it depends on, do you make people part of the process? That's one of the things I was saying at the beginning that you can imagine that if I come to you and say, hey, what do you do? Yeah, I have an engineering office. We make houses, low rise. I say, ah, pff, I can automate that. This is, this is the tool. You'll say, hey, who is this guy? Come on, I've been working in this business 20 years and he comes that you can automate this. Yeah, so you have like an, a mental barrier of doing this. Yeah. But the interesting thing about engineering is that there's lots of ego, big egos, because, oh, I am an engineer and I do this and that. And there's especially, actually young people as well. There's so much ego in what they do. They don't get the idea that there's something that it doesn't have to be so difficult. Yeah? It can be much simpler if you allow for change. Yeah, that's true. And there is where I think the key is when you make tools, include those people because those people that are maybe more senior and not that handy with programming, they have a lot of experience. They know a lot they're, what they're doing, even if they're doing it in a way that you young people just graduated from the university and with a lot of programming skills think it's dumb. They have a lot of experience. You have to respect that too. So what you need to do is join someone that has the experience with someone that has the programming skills and really let them work together. Because if the young guy just make a tool and doesn't include the more experienced guy that needs to use it, that will not work. Because it will say, yeah, another tool, I have my Excel sheets, whatever. You need to really work together, say, hey, what is your problem? Understand what is the problem of that senior engineer that's there doing that job? Why is he doing that? How much time does he spend? And see, hey, we could solve that. We could do that. Let's say I do this. Will that help you? And if he says, yeah, well, let's try it. Okay, you try it. You, you make something simple and you go again to him and say, hey, is this helping you? No, it's not helping me. This part is nice. This part is not nice. Okay, we can solve that. Then you start like collaborating. And it's not more that tool that it's imposed to you. It's your tool. It's your mm -hmm. tool too. And then you're open to this and you're collaborating and you're building this tool together. So I think it's really a human thing that, that needs to happen there, technology. So I think it's maybe 30% technology, 70% it's just people. So clearly collaboration and communication are very, very important. So Anand, so currently we have, and on the market, there's plenty of software from Autodesk, Trimble, for engineers that if you purchase for a few thousand pounds a year, you can use their full versions and you can automate your design within their scope. Yes. And that's some engineering businesses which employ smart engineers and programmers who can automate tasks within their businesses for their use cases. Now I can see there are businesses like yours, Victor, who help other engineering consultancies to automate their processes and design processes. How do you see the future in 5, 10, 20 years from now? How is it going to look like? Yeah. From the design part, you will see, of course, that automation will be very strong. So you see that now already that uh, artificial intelligence is gaining ground everywhere and that will be stronger and stronger in all kinds of engineering parts too. So there will be a real transformation on what you as an engineer will do in 10 years. 
I don't believe we will be replaced by AI or automation tools. So I think some people are concerned about that. I will say, don't worry. There is enough to do and to improve. But they think that the big difference is that you will spend less time doing calculations and you will especially spend more time reflecting about the results. So comparing different results using your expertise. Talk with stakeholders. We don't even have time to speak with stakeholders when you're designing because you are so sucked into the lab that you have to deliver and you have a deadline. So you will have some distance from that. You will be able to talk with different people about the solutions and you will be able to spend the time that you kind of waste now doing like boring stuff into real transformation and making things that have a big impact on society. So new materials, no way of constructing really fundamental changes to design. And I think that that will shift a bit so that we will be more using our creativity uh, more than now that we are just doing numbers. So before we move to off topic, oh, and if I can just say one more, how far are we from a software or solution that you speak to it and it generates the design, compliant design, structural design, for example, on during the time that you speak to it and you just change when you say that, oh, change this layout for three to four meters instead of two by five. It automates it as we speak and it generates. And just after you finish your speech, it generates the drawings or calculations and it all makes sense. How far are we from this situation? I think we're much closer than, than we would think to those kind of stuff. Yeah, really. It's going that hard, the development of artificial intelligence and all language models. So just to give you an example, as I said, Victor is a product to make web applications. And to make those web applications, you need to write Python code. So it's a language, but it's a programming language, but it's still text. We're developing like an assistant where you say, hey, make an app for me that shows whatever the five largest cities on a map. And after a minute, you have that app. You, You have the code of that app and you can copy paste it and it's running. So I think it's close and the extent until we will do that in the design, it's purely a matter of, I think, how much time you want to do invest in that. So maybe at the moment, the return on investment is not that strong for being able to spend that much hours getting this model right. But on the technology side, and it's going super hard, I think maybe five years, you will have it for sure. Hey Siri, make a building like <laughs> that. Hey, man, you got five years to update your CV. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm, don't worry about me. Okay, cool. Off-topic questions, Anand. So it's just kind of off-topic, but also you could relate it back to like, your work life in uh, Victor as well. But how do you stay on top of what is changing in the industry? Because automations and software is like extremely fast moving. Yeah, how do you stay fresh? Yeah, in our case, we're talking with everyone. So we have to be locked and we work with, uh, yeah, with a lot of engineering companies around the world. So all the big, large engineering firms in the world work with us and we work with them and we talk a lot about what's happening. We, yeah, you guys are on the top of innovation, actually. Yeah, in some aspects we are. Yeah. So in automation and creating tools, we are. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot happening and you have to keep your eyes open and also your brain's open. So sometimes you say, no, that's not possible. I'm not able to automate my process or whatever, but it's, it's only here. It is possible. So it's open yourself and uh, see what's around and read. There's so much information on the internet, uh, talk with people, listen to podcasts and try to apply it to your situation. And if you don't know how, just call the guy that's able to do it because there's so much possible at the moment. 
Don't follow the change, be it. Thank you, Mart. I'm inspired. <laughs> Your one? I actually did not prepare any. I can go with my usual one. It's design hacks. Oh, design hacks. I think we touched on it a little bit, but we okay. So okay, so for with a little effort, if it's uh, time or money, how can someone? Uh, maybe 10x is too much to ask, but 5x their workflow or particular task within the business. If you could share some uh, design hacks. Yeah, I think that's a lot. But the thing you said at the beginning, look what you do each day. And if you're spending something one hour each day, try to automate that stuff because that will be already make a big change and then go from there and uh, get used with the tools and, and start automating more stuff. It's, there's no single word. Answer. It depends a lot of your situation. If you're able to keep some distance from your routine and just zoom out and say, hey, what I am doing, this doesn't make sense. What <laughs> Each day I'm spending that much time in this, that much time in that, and then try to organize in another way, then that would be already 10x, I think. Yeah, that asking yourself a question, what am I doing and how should I do differently? It's a, it's a good hack anyway. <laughs> Not everyone do, does it, I'm sure. Okay, one last from me. Anand, if there was one thing, anything in your life that you could automate, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> uh, let me see. Yeah, I don't know if we could automate that, but I would love to teletransport to somewhere because uh, it would be so nice to just be somewhere. I have family in Chile and I will just like teleport for a weekend and come back. And if we could uh, solve that issue and automate that. Coming soon to Victor. Coming soon. <laughs> no, I think that's uh, maybe uh, 10 years away. No, I don't know. But yeah, traveling, it feels like a waste. Each time you're in the train or in the car or in the plane, it's, I think we could do better stuff uh, with time. Interesting what uh, people in the 1920s would say about how traveling is a waste. Like now we, we don't appreciate that. We just get on a plane and 10, 11 hours eight, uh, later, we are in China from yeah. Europe. So it would have taken like six, eight weeks. Yeah, six, eight weeks, 80 years ago. But new times, new expectations too, you know? So I'm quite amazed, at least here in the Netherlands, you have so many web shops where you order something before 12 o'clock and it's the next morning, it's in your house. It's, <laughs> everything is going so fast. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, and then, so where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Ananda Bergman, maybe we can leave a link somewhere. If you want to know more about Victor, you can go to our web website. So it's Victor with a K of Kilo dot AI. If you want to try it, you can try it for free. You can actually use it for free. You can make, uh, there's no limitations. You can uh, build all the apps you want. You can even put those applications online for free. Um, yeah. And if you have any questions, just uh, send me a message and we'll be more than happy to, to talk with you. It doesn't matter if you're a student, a professor of the CEO of uh, the biggest company, just uh, yeah, give me a call. Sounds good. And you're hosting an event later this year? Yeah, we're hosting an event. So um, in November, we have yeah, UCODE, so it's the Universal Conference of Digital Engineering. And it will be quite nice. We will have digital uh, leaders from different companies, so people more in management role, but also people really making the tools, design, parametric design experts, so all around automation, citizen development. So citizen development is a term meaning that Actually, the field of the civil engineer makes his own tools. Now it's by a T, so the civilian make their own tools, so citizen development, organizing that and automating stuff. And it's all around that. And we will have some very good speakers, which we will uh, make public soon. So 
yeah, everyone is it's invited. It's, it's for free, so join. Maybe we'll leave also a link uh, in the comments and then uh, share it with the world. Mm -hmm. When is that again? In November. So I don't know if it will be on time. Okay. Remember, don't follow the change, be it. <laughs> Wise words. Wise words. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.